And the Buddha gave a number of preconditions that are necessary so that we can meditate properly. Conditions which have to do, some of them, with our daily lives and others with our inner capacities. Now that those that have to do with our daily lives, they have to be organized before one comes to meditation course. That we can't do now all of a sudden. But in any case, they are important to know so that we may be able to even see where some of the difficulties come from that we experience when we can't concentrate. One of the things that he mentions over and over again in various ways is the kind of company we keep. Here when it concerns concentration and meditation, he says that we should not be together with people who do not have trained minds, concentrated minds. In other words, we should try and be together with those who also meditate. It's quite clear that one meets lots of people in one's daily life, but, and most of them don't meditate. But this concerns those that we are closely connected to. If we take meditation seriously, and if we really want to do it as a foundation for our own spirituality, then it is important that we are together with those who do that too. Because there's a different dimension which is quite clearly felt if one wants to live a spiritual life or remains on the material level. Living a spiritual life is not necessarily connected with any different outer condition, but it's certainly connected with a different inner condition what one thinks is important and what isn't, and how one spends one's time. So here it is said that the precondition is to be together with those who also meditate. Another condition which he mentions is to have order and cleanliness in one's life. That's an interesting statement because it, of course, concerns our outer environment, orderly and clean, so that we 
feel at ease in it. But it also concerns the situation that we're in, which could be in some sort of disorder because of difficulties in one's, um, with one's partner or difficulties in one's business life, difficulties with one's friends, one's landlord, anything like that creates disorder. And that disorder will prey on the mind. If there is anything like that in one's life, one knows already that it's preying on one's mind. And therefore, the path of meditation is disrupted and it makes it far more difficult. One needs a really strong willpower to overcome such things. So order in one's life in such matters that concern one's emotions is a necessity. Now many people or some people hope to organize their emotional lives when they can meditate. It's definitely catch-22. Our emotional life has to be already <coughs> on a level of some equanimity so that we can gain equanimity. It works both ways. It's connected to making good karma, of course. Because when we know we have made good karma, we don't have any regrets and we don't have a bad conscience. So, on the contrary, we feel quite at ease with ourselves. We may be feeling pleased with ourselves and we may think that that is also not good, but that's not so. It's actually a meditation practice, remembering one's own good deeds. Dhamma nusanti. It's not taboo to remember the good things one has done. It's just the opposite. It's a boost for one's own feeling of confidence. So making good karma, keeping one's emotional life on an equal level and physical order and cleanliness around one. Certainly not luxury, always the middle way but certainly not a kind of uh, disaster area. Always that which is easy to deal with. The um, 
material world, the physical world, and all that's connected to it, it's not that easy to deal with. It needs repair, it needs cleaning, it needs protection, it needs renewal, some of it needs to be insured. So there's a constant mental connection. The less we try to accumulate, the simpler we try to live, the easier it is to have a spiritual connection in one's life. The more elaborate our physical life is, the more diversified, the busier we get, the more difficult it becomes. Busy is the world. Spirituality is never busy. It just is. There's nothing to be busy about. So these are preconditions which concern a certain purification aspect of our outer life. And the support system of friends that have the same aspiration. Purification of our outer life is a direct mirror of the purification of our inner life. So when we have been able to put a bit of order into the world around us, the direct environment that we live doesn't concern the total environment, but just the direct environment, then we come to the five spiritual uh, faculties, which I've already mentioned last night, but only two of them. Altogether, there are five, and I said that one is the leading one mindfulness. And out of mindfulness I have so far described mindfulness of the body. It is the one that we are using as a meditation subject at the moment, rest and walking, and it is the one which is the easiest to practice in daily life because not only does so much happen with the body, but also it's easy to see and easy to touch. Every time we remember to pay attention to the movement of the body, we are back on the meditative track. Every time we forget we're back in the world. We've got those two choices. We can be concerned with 
our inner life, our purification, the spiritual aspect that every human being carries within their heart and mind, or we can be concerned with the world. Since the world will never leave us entirely alone, the necessity of being in touch with it is always there because we have a body we might as well minimize that concern particularly in a meditation form the concern with the world will never leave us um, as long as we have a body but we don't have to give it all of our attention nor do we have to give it all of our energies mindfulness has four foundations first one body second one feeling third one mental state and fourth one content of thought now I'll mention the last one now the fourth one as another aspect to be practiced. I have already said that that what we think is the primary mover. We cannot speak nor can we act without having thought it. Although we usually don't pay enough attention to ourselves to become aware of that. We often have the idea that the thought has nothing to do with it. We speak or act impulsively. But what really happens is that the thought wasn't noticed and therefore whatever is contained was brought out in speech and action even though afterwards we might reconsider and think it wasn't the wisest thing to say or do therefore our main focus of attention when we want to make good karma, when we want to purify our inner being, are the contents of the thoughts. Now, the labeling that we do in the meditation when we are disturbed by any kind of disruptive thought is that what we need in order to know whether we have a wholesome or unwholesome thought. The labeling tells us the content. In meditation, that labeling may not be totally exact. It doesn't matter. It gives us the practice of knowing the content. The Buddha called that the four supreme ethics and I will tell you 
the way it is worded. Not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. Not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen. To make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. To make a wholesome thought continue which has already arisen. In shorthand language, it's avoid, overcome, develop, maintain. And those four words contain the purification aspect. The teaching of the Buddha is sometimes called the path of purification. It's sometimes called the middle way. It's sometimes called the teaching of cause and effect sometimes called the teaching of analysis. doesn't matter what we call it, we've got to practice a lot. This is a very interesting aspect of the Buddhist teaching, that when we first hear it, it seems as if there are a whole lot of disconnected little pieces, like in a picture puzzle. And we don't quite know where to put them. As we practice each one of those little pieces, we know exactly its place. And as we put them together, we get one beautiful picture. There is a centerpiece to that picture. But all the other little pieces are needed in order to get the centerpiece. The centerpiece is the removal of our self-illusion. But unless we practice all the other bits and pieces, that will not come about. And out of those bits and pieces, meditation is one. Meditation is not a path. Meditation is a tool, a means but not a spiritual life, nor is it a spiritual path. People often say, oh, I'm practicing. Practicing an hour a day, or just I'm practicing. And what they mean when they say that is that they sit down to meditate. But unless they practice what I've just described, the four supreme efforts, we're not practicing. Sitting with one's legs crossed on a little pillow is all very nice. Especially when the concentration has come about, it's extremely pleasant. But that's only one piece of the whole picture puzzle. And it will never flourish, nor will it give us a spiritual direction in life unless we combine it with all the other practices. This one, the four supreme methods, are four of the 37 factors of enlightenment. Indispensable, not just for spiritual life, indispensable for happiness. So that is what 
people want, isn't it? Happiness. And we have so many ideas how to get it. And we've probably tried most of them already. I think most of us are old enough to have tried practically everything. And I think one can say without much fear of disagreement, it hasn't worked, has it? It's all temporary. And some of it has both built in, happiness and unhappiness, and some of it just has unhappiness built in. But whatever it is, it's always connected with the outer condition over which we have no control, and therefore fear. Whatever it may be that we've tried, it's an outer condition. The only thing that is without fear and without dependence, independently practiced and possible, is the inner condition. And that inner condition is then the spiritual life. As long as we rely on anything outside of ourselves, there is no way that we can be sure. And the expectation that we have of it brings with it disappointment. All expectations have disappointments built in belong together. The practice of those four supreme efforts to avoid and overcome, to develop and maintain, means that we avoid that which is negative and unwholesome. If it is already there, we overcome it. And that we develop and maintain that which is wholesome. Now, in this particular instance, I'm talking about thoughts. And we will see that there are other things that have the same implication, such as emotion. But first, thought. Because thought is also the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So I'd like to add that to the practice that outside of meditation, not only do we pay attention to the body action as authority, but also to the thought content, especially when our mindfulness slips off the body action and movement, or when the thought content becomes so strong that the mind can no longer pay attention to the body, but is concerned with the thought process. How do we know when we have an unwholesome thought which needs to be either avoided or overcome? It is always connected with dislike, rejection, resistance, and invariably creates 
a feeling of either anxiety or unhappiness or a feeling of becoming depressed and doesn't have to be totally depressed by it, but getting there. Everything that's wholesome and beneficial creates a feeling of lightness, of upliftment, of feeling at ease, well-being. It's a very interesting fact that all negative thoughts are energy-consuming. In fact, if we have enough of them, we lose all our energy. We feel depleted. Whereas the positive thoughts, those that are connected with care and concern for others, helpfulness, appreciation, are creating energy. They lift us where the others pull us down. If we try these things, we will find immediately, just by trying it once, that we can do it. That we can actually change our negative thought to a positive. And having done it once, we gain self-confidence that we can always do it. But more than that, that we are no longer victims of our thoughts. Until we try this, we're victims. The mind thinks and we react. But when we take a hand in it, we become master of our own situation. If we want happiness, and there isn't any sane human being that doesn't want happiness, quite rightly so, this needs to be practiced in everyday life. And here, outside of the meditation. In meditation, all our thoughts need to be substituted because all of them are disruptive of the meditation unless they are concerned with the contemplation. But outside of meditation it's the negative ones. If we practice it here we can take it home with us as a skill without which life will never run smoothly. It does not mean that we cannot distinguish between what's good and bad. That would be foolishness. Avoiding the negative does not imply foolishness. But it means that we will protect ourselves. If we don't protect ourselves, nobody else will. Most people don't know how to protect themselves, so why should they protect us? 
we can think of our mind as originally a bright and shining jewel which contains all goodness, the seed of enlightenment, the brilliance of clarity and purity. The reason we don't know about it is because we have negative thoughts. And they cover up the brilliance and the purity and the clarity. They um, dirty it up, that beautiful jewel. And the less careful we are, the dirtier it gets. People nowadays are worried about the pollution of the environment. Quite rightly so. We can't pollute our environment any worse than with our negative thoughts. We don't have to say a thing. Our environment is aware of the thought process. It's not difficult to know what somebody is thinking without them spelling it out exactly. If we are in the same room with them and we watch their body language and we become aware of the expression on their face and we become aware of how the whole person appears. So our thoughts are no secret. We often think they are. We can think anything. Nobody knows about it. That's one wrong view. And we can think anything. It doesn't matter. It's an even worse wrong view. First of all, we make karma with ourselves. And secondly, we pollute our own mind. The more often we do it, the deeper the ruts, until they might become so deep that we can't even get out of them anymore, like a wet driveway into, into which a truck has made deep ruts by going back and forth on it over and over again. And maybe if that is so, we might need a crane to lift that truck out of those rocks. That can happen to our own mind if we're not careful. Most people in the world are not careful at all. Take their own mind for granted. It just thinks thinks just enough to survive and that's not a valid endeavor in a human life because nobody makes it it's a foregone conclusion that we can't win that one so if we don't have any greater ambition than that our life is really not worth being called a human life. Taking our own mind for granted is absurd because we know 
that we can have so many different mindsets and some of them very conducive to peace and happiness and others just the opposite. So the moment when we stop taking a hand in this is the beginning of spiritual life. The spiritual life does not begin when we sit down on a pillow. In fact, it may never begin just by sitting down on a pillow. But when we watch the content of thought and make sure that we substitute this opposite, anything that's negative and unwholesome, that's when we change from just allowing things to happen and being a victim to one who is eventually going to be a master. This brings inner strength, the confidence that we do not have to be unhappy unless we allow it. It's very interesting that most people think they're unhappy because something is happening that they don't like. In reality, we're unhappy because we allow ourselves to be. Once we have learned not to do that, we'd be fools, wouldn't we, if we would continue. The most difficult thing is to notice an unwholesome thought before it has arisen. With trained mindfulness, a little more trained through meditation, we can become aware that an unwholesome thought sends ahead unpleasant feelings. A feeling of dullness, of heaviness, a feeling of uh, fogginess, sometimes a feeling of not well-being. And because those feelings are there, we then search around for the matching thought and we invariably find it because there are millions of those. Very easy to pick one out. And with it, we often also try to find a cause for it outside of ourselves. As long as we try to find a cause for our unwholesome thoughts outside of ourselves, we haven't started practicing. The moment we start practicing a spiritual discipline, doesn't matter what name it has, we know that all the causes are within us. What's outside of us are the triggers, but everything that happens comes from in here. I like to compare that with the little jack-in-the-box that children play with. It's a little cardboard box. There's a little doll inside sitting on a spring and it has a lid on it, that box. 
and the child only has to touch the lid lightly and the little jack-in-the-box jumps out to the great delight of the child. And then one day somebody comes around and pulls the little doll out of the box and throws it away. And then the child can come with a hammer and nothing jumps out. All the things that happen from us to us with us are the little jack-in-the-boxes that jump out from here when the lid is touched just lightly. Once we're rid of the stuff, people can use a hammer and nothing jumps out. We must start, in order to live a spiritually orientated life, to distinguish between the triggers outside and our own reactions. If we allow those triggers to touch us to the extent that whatever is our reaction to jump out, we must know that it can only do so because it's sitting in there, just waiting. That's all. And if you can remember that simile, the jack-in-the-box, may be easier to recognize it when it happens. And for most people it happens day in and day out, hour after hour. And most of the time we probably think if we could get rid of the trigger, we'd be fine. But if we think about that for a moment, we will realize that that's absurd too. There's no end to them. If it isn't one, it's another. And sometimes the trigger is called John and sometimes called Mary. It doesn't matter. And sometimes it has other names. But there's always a trigger. So to know the unwholesome thought before it arises is extremely helpful because we will not make any detrimental ruts into the mind with the unwholesome thinking. We will already, before it arises, put our mind into the positive direction. Once it has arisen, the quicker we change it, the better. Don't give it any justification or identification. Just be the objective observer of knowing that's unwholesome and that's to my own detriment. Whether it's to the detriment of another person depends on the fact whether they also allow the triggers to make them react. But the one who's thinking negatively is the one who's having the detrimental effect. That's ourselves. So if we want happiness and if we want to protect ourselves, this is the first line of defense. Not to allow the negative thought 
to arise or to remain. Always to try to develop the positive thought and having developed it, to maintain it. Most of our problems in life are usually with other people. We don't have so many problems with animals or nature or inanimate subjects, objects, mainly because they don't talk back. They don't tell us anything. So our problems with other people are very often the thought processes that go on in our own mind. We project. And what do we project onto the other person? Exactly what we've got in our own mind. Nothing else is projectable. So we have actually our environment as a mirror. And if we use that mirror skillfully, it will show us where the cleaning is necessary. In our own mirror image, of course. Those four, the four supreme efforts, are called supreme because they bring supreme benefits and are also quite difficult. The sooner we start practicing them, the easier it will become because it's a matter of habit. Watching oneself objectively. As we become geared in that direction also through the meditation of course it becomes second nature and we refrain from blaming anyone neither another nor ourselves there is nobody to blame essentially there's nobody there but there's certainly nobody to blame because things are as they are. Self-blame is just as damaging as blaming others. Blame is blame. In fact, self-blame can be more damaging because we become totally dissatisfied with ourselves. Mindfulness is the key point of practice outside of meditation. It is supported by the meditation because that too requires mindfulness. And mindfulness is the mental factor that leads to concentration. So if we'd like to get concentrated, we'd like to have some peace of mind in the meditation, we must use mindfulness outside of meditation. The more we do that, the more we feel at ease. We don't have to regret anything. We knew exactly what we were doing and we knew exactly what we were thinking. We have nothing to regret. We don't have anything to feel bad conscience about. 
nothing at all. And therefore the meditation works much better. So we have two foundations of mindfulness, body and content of thought. And both should be practiced. And mindfulness is the key to self-recognition and therefore the key to not only purification and change but the key to insight because the Buddha said the whole of the universe lies in this fathom long body body and mind one fathom long the whole of the universe so if we are ever had a thought of trying to find out what there really is, all we have to do is look at ourselves. We are the microcosm and the macrocosm. We depict the whole picture, nothing left out. We just need to get to know ourselves. And of course that's what a meditation course is for. Mindfulness need not be balanced with anything else. It can be as strong as our abilities allow. Particularly remembering. Remembering to be mindful. To be mindful eliminates worrying. It eliminates fear and anxiety at the time of mindfulness. It eliminates projection, dreaming, fantasizing. It eliminates everything except being here now. And since we have already agreed upon the fact that there is only one single moment in which we can live, we do that, we've given ourselves the best chance also for meditation. That's enough for this evening. Any questions? This is the time for it. Yes, it can. If you feel angry and you realize that that's totally useless, that's a very positive thought. There is a third possibility. You can do something about it without being angry. which would be the Buddha's way. You needn't shrug your shoulders, no need to be angry. You see, when we use positive, our mind positively, as I said, it does not mean that we lose our discriminating ability to know what's good and what's bad. On the contrary, because anger as an emotion 
no longer clouds our view, we see far more clearly. Anger is an emotion which clouds the view because it's a very strong emotion. And in the end, all we know is the anger. So the, um, we will talk about anger again at another time because it belongs to the um, purification of emotion. Uh, the um, thought process which I was quoting today or explaining today will have angry thoughts, but the content of it is what makes it quite clear that from it the emotion of anger will arise. So the uh, emotions have a, also a special way of being dealt with. We'll talk about that too. Yes. Well, his exact words were to spend time or to be together with people who have trained their mind. Or uh, one can translate also to be together with people who have concentrated mind. So it doesn't necessarily um, mean that they, that one cannot train one's mind only through meditation, but the qualities that bring the mind to a different level of consciousness can be experienced spontaneously, but if so, it will, in practically all cases, result in meditation. And that does not mean just watching one's breath. But on the other hand, this is partic particularly geared, this particular statement of being together with people who have trained or concentrated minds, particularly geared for the, for towards attaining a concentrated mind oneself. But in other connections, the Buddha has said that one should be together with people who have a spiritual path or live a spiritual life and did not particularly mention meditation. But what I'm talking about was is particularly geared towards the meditation. So in other words, one should be together with those people who do the things that oneself is also interested in. And if one has friends or acquaintances who are interested in a spiritual life and are not interested in meditation and oneself is interested in meditation, it might lead to argument. It's possible. Because one would, the natural inclination of people is to convince other people of one's own opinions. So it's may be useful to find those that also meditate if one wants, if one takes meditation seriously.
But other than that, noble friends, I will talk about them also again. What's actually a noble friend is and how we can be one. I will mention that also. That's another topic. Yes. When you talk about prevention and addiction, first of all, I think that everyone should be aware that they come from extremely old Instead of looking for the thought that may have caused, supposedly, that feeling, one immediately puts one's mind onto a positive thought. There's no need to uh, try to remove those feelings which are the forerunners of the negative thought. But instead of looking for that negative thought, one immediately looks for a positive one. And that way then the feelings go with it. And that's from a practical standpoint extremely useful. It changes one's life completely. <coughs> it's a, a, that step which is um, most important to take. Anything else? Yes. Any any thought which has as a content helpfulness, a care for others, um, appreciation, praise of of another remembering goodness, determination to for goodness, the uh, strength of one's willpower to overcome impulse and instinct, to uh, let go of um, amassing materiality, getting more, having more, wanting more, all of these are positive. They are innumerable. They, they are certainly give one a feeling of strength. There's a feeling of um, well-being. And if one stays with them, doesn't allow the others to come in, a feeling of well-being is there all the time. Yes. Yes, it's quite true. Uh, it's difficult to do if one names people who haven't, who are not on the same side, such as naming Sylvia and Sam. Then the problem goes. Quite so. 
And the Buddha's idea is certainly not to go to those people then that one has known for some time and say to them, look, I, I don't want anything to do with you, you're not spiritual enough. That's certainly not the idea. In that case, and I think that uh, many of us would have that uh, same experience, we would become their noble friends without trying to be missionaries. And if we can be a noble friend to them, it's a great and wonderful practice for us so that we may be able to inject something of a spiritual nature into their lives without trying to badger them that they should do the same as we do. Uh, we do attract like people um, to a certain extent. It's not always a guarantee. It's also karmic. But the, um, the injunction is of the Buddha over and over again that we have a deliberate intention to have and to be noble friends. And there's a, quite a lot of explanation on that which I will talk about because he gives exact guidelines what it means to be a noble friend. The Buddha certainly didn't lack precision. A total precision which goes as far as even the uh, ex explanations how to deal with one's daily life in, uh, uh, in one's actions. So the, um, the um, birds of a feather flock together is quite true. But still, there are so many people in one's life, always, as you say, that there's always the opportunity to be also um, influenced by others. And therefore, one must remember then, in that case, to be their noble friend. Because it's a, it's a matter of being very one-pointed in one's intentions. Anything else? Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Think of yourself as your own best friend, the one who cares about your well-being, about your spiritual growth, about your happiness. Feel this friendship for yourself, this care and concern, and fill yourself with friendship and love.
Now think of yourself as the best friend of the person sitting nearest you in this room. wanting to help, caring and concerned about that person's well-being and happiness. Fill him or her from head to toe with your feelings of friendship and surround him or her with your feelings of love and care. And now think of yourself as the best friend of everyone here. Fill everyone with your feelings of friendship, of helpfulness and concern, and surround everyone with your feelings of love and care. Now think of yourself as the best friend of your parents. Wanting to help, concerned about their well-being, always reliable and ready to be there, accepting not condemning. Fill them with your friendship. Surround them with your love.
think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you and think of yourself as their best friend. Fill them from head to toe with your feelings of friendship. And embrace them with your love and care and concern. Not expecting the same in return. Think of your good friend and be their best friend. Concerned about their well-being, reliable, ready to help. Fill them from head to toe with feelings of sincere friendship and surround them with your love and care. Think of your neighbors at home, the people you work with, the people you meet on the street, in the shops, in the offices, those who are part of your life. Be their best friend. Fill them with feelings of friendship. Make that heart connection, surround them with your love and care. Think of anyone 
whom you find difficult, difficult to connect to or difficult to deal with, or at whom you're angry, or with whom you're disappointed. And think of yourself as that person's best friend, ready to help, caring and concerned, giving and loving. Fill and surround that person with those feelings. Feel your heart being filled with friendship to overflowing and let it overflow and be carried to people near and far, those you know and those you don't, those you've seen, those you've never seen. those that you just assume that they're there. Let this feeling of deep friendship and connection with others, togetherness, reach out first to people in this area, the village, and further, next villages, towns and cities, your friendship flowing through the whole of the country, touching people's hearts. Feel that interconnectedness that we all have. your attention back on yourself. Make a resolution to be your own best friend. Feel that friendship for yourself. The love and care that go with friendship. Recognize them. Fill yourself with them. Surround yourself with them. Realizing that's a friendship you can depend on. Anchor it in your heart. 
let you always have it available. May all beings be friends with each other.